What does it mean to be humble? It basically means that... Well, that leads to humbleability, because when you're humble, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily... When you're humble, it helps to be like... I've heard of it before, but I'm not exactly sure what it means because I learned what it was in Sunday school one time, a long time ago, but I don't remember what it means now. Uh, so, if you open your Bibles to Luke 18, verse 9, that's where we're going to start this morning, Luke 18, 9 through 14. That's page 749 in the uh, Bibles in the pew area. I don't know why I call these pews, but it just makes me feel churchy. Um, 749, if you're looking along there, Luke 18, 9 through 14. The title of this morning's sermon is, I thought Jesus wanted me to have a healthy self-esteem. I thought Jesus wanted me to have a healthy self-esteem. We've been looking through Luke 15 through 18. Jesus has challenged our notions of what we think of God in radically surprising ways. And certainly this morning will be one of them. According to one psychologist I was reading on this week, self-esteem is the collection of beliefs and feelings we have about ourselves. It's one definition of self-esteem. As of 2003, self-esteem became the third most frequently occurring theme in both popular and academic psychological literature. Third most popular, 25,000 articles, chapters, books on this topic of self-esteem. It's quite impressive. You know, I took a couple trips to bookstores this last couple weeks just to look at this. And, you know, there are, of course, you know, as you know, the self-help section is uh, a very famous one, any bookstore you go to. Why is self-esteem so important? Or is it? Is it important at all? That's, we're going to come to a conclusion, that question, by the end of this morning. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Read with me, if you would. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus asked this morning that your spirit would be present with us. God, I believe you have some hard things to say to us this morning. Uh, things that we are prone to believe aren't really applicable to us, but maybe to others. God, I pray that you would remind us when you have hard things to say to us, God, 
that they are for our good, to always draw us nearer to you. So God, may we take in a little pain for the pleasure of knowing you. And we just ask you would speak through your word. Give us a heart to hear and ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a little background, uh, Pharisee tax collector, a little, little background on these guys. I want to do so kind of in a different way through it. I want to give a little e-harmony profile of both a Pharisee and a tax collector for these two single men. For all the single ladies in the house, whoop, whoop. Look at these men, all right. You're, yes, thank you. I got one whoop out of that. Again, this section disappoints me. That's all right, then. All right, e-harmony profile. I want to give you first the Pharisee. If you were to look on his profile, he would describe himself as religious. A reader knows God's law and is frighteningly efficient. His hobbies include, I enjoy arguing about Sabbatarian laws and trying to convince people that they are wrong. Things I enjoy. On a date, I'm ready to criticize you at any moment for ordering something that's not permitted in God's dietary laws. And you must love matzo ball soup and wearing yarmulkes. Very fashionable. And the question I would ask you is please list three reasons why I should date you. All right? And preferably in order and in superficiality first. So that's our Pharisee. For some reason, he's Jafar. I don't know why from Aladdin, but it just struck me as being Pharisee-like. And then the tax collector. What his eHarmony profile looked like. I think he would describe himself as a uh, traitor to Jews everywhere. A struggling hypocrite who still desires to know God. Hobbies include feeling guilty, being more loyal to Rome than Israel. Feeling guilty about taking money and occasionally cheating people out of it. And of course, the uh, you know, occasional, taking an occasional chariot race at the local track, right? These are the things he enjoys on a date. Take you to a nice dinner. You know, maybe a walk. But secretly, first he hoped that you wouldn't order something expensive because he's cheap. But you take a walk past Herod's palace, and I would also try to learn something about you because I want to keep the spotlight off of me. <laughs> All right. My question to you would be, want to go out with me? <laughs> that would be the task collector's questions. That gives you a little background on these two kind of guys and what they are like and certainly what Jesus intended. <laughs> Maybe not in the dating realm, but you get the point. So we're going to look at these two guys and these two porches which is what Jesus gives us. We're going to go with, look at the Pharisee and then the tax collector. So we're going to start this morning with the Pharisee. Living for the biography. The Pharisee lives to make his name renowned. Because the Pharisee has something that many of us are familiar with. I know I certainly am. And that is pride. Pride. He gives us a portrait of pride. Pride, one of the characteristics of it is that it is all about me. Right? Which happens to be one of my favorite worship songs. Right? You know this one. It's all about me, Jesus. All this is for me. Are you guys familiar with that one? No? That's one of my favorites. I sing it all the time. This is why Jesus tells this story is to people who are consumed and trust in me. There's going to be no more singing. All right, you guys did not appreciate that enough. Taking my act to Vegas. All right. All about me. That's why Jesus tells this story. I think about 
an author who's greatly influenced my life, Brendan Manning, said this about the antithesis of pride, humility. He said, humble men and women do not have a low opinion of themselves. They have no opinion of themselves because they so rarely think about themselves. Now, this is the problem for the Pharisee, for the person of pride. It's not so much they always, it doesn't really start with them thinking highly about themselves, although they do that, but it's that they think about themselves so often, right? That's where it starts, and we see this in this passage, how the Pharisee is frequently thinking about it. So we see it just in two verses. Read with me in verses 11 through 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. How many times in two verses does this man use the personal pronoun I? Does this count it up? Give me an answer. Anyone got one out there? How many times we go with I? Verse 1. Five, thank you. Five times, thank you, Rob. Five times. In two verses. Now, if you are like me and didn't notice that when we read this the first time, you probably noticed it just now. Uh, I think there's a reason for this. We have a hard time noticing because you and I likely struggle with me, myself, and I as our favorite pronouns. Right? A little, a little side challenge here. Go back and, and if you have a journal, go back to your journal, your blog, your last 20 posts on Facebook, or, or your last 20 texts. And count the number of times per sentence you write me, myself, or I. Or how many times per text or post me, myself, or I. Just try. I, I tried this, okay? I tried this. So I want to practice what I preach. Got out the old phone. Looked at my last 15 texts. Ten out of my last 15 texts were much about me, right? What do I need? What can you do for me? Me. Uh, Ten out of 15. Not a good percentage, right? Just like the Pharisee, right? And like him, we often forget about God and focus on ourselves. And he does this even when he prays. Look with me in verse 11 again. He says, or Jesus says about the Pharisee, he was standing by himself and prayed thus. Now, you may have a little footnote there. I think it might be footnote number four. I'm not sure. But if you look down there at the bottom of your Bible, it should say, standing praying to himself. The construction of the sentence in Greek could easily read, and I think it does, very much like the New American Standard Version, if anyone has that of the Bible, New American Translation, that the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. Not only is it I, me, I, me when he prays, but he's even praying to himself. He goes in, others think he's praying to God, but it seems he's praying to himself, and it's subtle, but praying can be a way of not so much talking to God 
but working through things with ourselves. Have you noticed this in life? You ever going to pray? And you have, you know, I have the intention of praying to God, but I, I quickly eliminate God from the conversation. Right? I think we often use prayer, I know in my own life, to reassure myself, number one, and to rationalize a decision. Alright, I often start to reassure myself. You know, God, I know, well, I messed up, but, you know, I'm pretty good with God, right? I know what the Bible tells me. We're good, me and Jesus are cool. I start all of a sudden, I'm talking to myself. And secondly, I do it to rationalize a decision, right? You know, my girlfriend, she says he's a Christian. She says he's a Christian, you know, and even though she doesn't really have any fellowship in her life, and she's not really bearing much fruit, like, you know, the Bible says she says to be a Christian. So sure, it's fine that I'm dating her and we're about to get engaged and married, right? We start rationalizing decisions we're making. Have you guys ever noticed this in your life? Ever start kind of just subtly, like, talking to yourself in prayer? Such is the way of pride. We put ourselves first, and it's so natural. But in doing so, we remove the living God from the picture who wants to reach into our lives and speak into our lives. Notice too, I want us to notice how subtle pride creeps into our lives. Even in this passage. In this passage, it's so subtle. It's counting up pronouns and it's a footnote. That's pride in this passage. And that's how subtle pride is. That's how it works in our lives. Pride doesn't devour us in giant man-sized bites, but in, in little weenie-sized nibbles. That's how pride starts to seep into our lives. It's getting another's attention when they haven't recognized what I've done. It's the quick word to defend ourselves and our reputation. Right? It's starting a conversation with me to make sure I get heard. It's starting my day planning around what I need to do. It's turning as we just saw, a conversation with God into a self-help session starring me. And finally, it's building up brick by brick a mental long laundry list of why you're better than the person sitting next to you so you can do it in the name of building your own self-esteem. Which really is just building up our pride. Thirdly, pride is surprisingly all about the other person compared to me. <laughs> it's all about the other person, but compared to me. Here's the thing about pride. Pride at its core is essentially competitive. It never exists in a vacuum. It never exists by ourselves, just thinking on our own, just me, just me, always ends up comparing to someone else or to a group of people. And we see this with the Pharisee, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's always the others. It's always the other people, the extortioners, the tax collectors, the unjust. And we never say this publicly or even in a prayer to God, but we love to discover 
what lurks in the shadows of another person's life. Right? We like to know what's in the shadows of another person's life because we always think we can assure, our, assure ourselves at least I'm better than that person. Right? At least I'm better than blank. Man, the, that's the old comparison. Right? We always think that God will accept that argument from us. At least I'm better than that person. Essentially, it's competitive. If you don't think that you're looking for flaws in the shadows of another's life, let me ask you this question. To whom does Jesus address this parable? To what audience does Jesus address this parable? What do you think? If you're like me, when I first read, I think it's the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees in the story. You know, they've been the prideful ones. That's who it is. But why not the disciples? Why do we decide on the Pharisees? Especially when Jesus actually has actually been directing all of his conversation towards the disciples. If you remember, halfway through that section at the end of chapter 17, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he turns his attention to the disciples and talks to them privately. And if you notice, he hasn't turned his attention away from them since. It's very likely here that he is actually talking to the disciples. But we automatically assume he's talking to the Pharisees. Why? I would suggest because we are the disciples and they are the Pharisees. Isn't that the way we always approach God's word? If you read what Jesus has to say, oh, well, we're disciples. I've got to be careful, but they are the Pharisees. Right there. Jesus catches us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's probably me. Pride grabs and even affects our interpretation of God's word. All right. When reading this parable, there's another thing going on here. I tend to read it imagining the Pharisees, Pharisee in one snapshot, right over here, and the tax collector in another. In doing so, though, we forget that these two are at the same temple, the same time, and likely praying simultaneously, right? Why does this matter? Because the Pharisee shows that even in the middle of prayer, he has one eye on himself, remember he's praying to himself, but one eye on others. One eye on others. You can imagine him peering back, knowing that the tax collector is there at the same time as he is, and behind him, because he would have been further in the temple of God. Remember, the tax collector is far away from the altar. You can imagine him peering back and saying, and thank God I'm not like this tax collector. Right? Pride is essentially competitive. It takes no pleasure out of having something, but takes pleasure out of having more than the next person. Isn't that sad? This is the tragedy of pride. We get mad at people who are pride. We get angry at prideful people. But it's really sad. And it's sad in our own lives. That we would miss out taking pleasure in anything God would grant us. And the only thing we can take pleasure in is when we have more than the next person. That's the tragedy with pride. So, just as the Pharisee 
prayed, keeping one eye on himself and the other on the tax collector. So pride is all about me and all about the other person compared to me. So that's what we've learned so far. Pride thinks me, pride is essentially competitive, and pride subtly creeps into our thinking. That is a portrait of pride that Jesus gives us here. But let's look at a portrait of humility. I'd settle for my name getting two hits on Google, the tax collector. This guy doesn't care. He doesn't need the biography written about him. And we should pay attention to this dude because he goes home and can rest his head on his pillow at night because he goes home justified. Right? So that's a good position to be in. We should pay attention to him and his humility. Three things here. One, humility begins with a recognition of God's holiness. That God is perfect in splendor and majesty and so very much unlike us. As we read in verses 13, the tax collector not standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast. He stood far away from the altar. He knew he did not deserve to be close to God. He sees God's perfection which like a fluorescent light to a face full of acne reveals our imperfection. Right? You ever had that feeling, by the way? I remember when I was younger, uh, we used to have uh, it's weird things in at, at our school gym. Right? Like we'd have dance classes sometimes and you know, obviously we'd have PE as well. But that embarrassing moment and the, the fluorescent lights are on. You know, that sound they make. And you walk into the gym and I had, you know, I had some blemish problems. And it was always embarrassing. It's like, those fluorescent lights made your face beam with purple. I looked like, you know, uh, Barney or something like that, you know, my face. But that's how God's holiness works and affects us. It's hard. It reveals our sin, our imperfection in life. And that's why he stays far away. He looks down at his feet. But he also, humility really sets in with total dependence on God's mercy. Right? And so while he's there, he cries out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a man who speaks and clings to mercy like a drowning person trying to find and cling to a rock in the middle of the ocean, right? He is desperate for it. Without God's mercy, if God doesn't love and save him as he is, gross, sinful, hypocrite, weak, he will surely die. He knows who he is. So he desperately cries out for God's mercy. He points and looks towards God for it. And that's key, folks, because humility is not in itself serving others or acting like you're not important. It might result in some of those things, but ultimately, it's Godward. Thirdly, humility is absolutely essential for being a Christian. Absolutely essential for being a Christian. One of my favorite scriptures, James 4, 6. I'm just quoting Proverbs. You can also find this in 1 Peter, by the way. James quotes Proverbs saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, grace can only be enjoyed by those who can admit that they need it. 
That's the key right there. It can only be enjoyed by those who admit that they need it. That's what Jesus calls the poor in spirit. Remember in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means these are people who recognize they're not super spiritual. They're poor in spirit. But they know it. And so they cry out to God for help. I'm going to conclude this morning with a warning, a challenge, and a story. First, a warning. To beware of mistaking humility for Christian Eorism. Alright? Beware of mistaking humility for Christian Eorism. Do you remember Eeyore, right? From Winnie the Pooh? Remember this guy? He was, he's famous for such catchphrases as Thanks for noticing me. And we always say this. Thanks for noticing me, Pooh. You know, and, and this can creep in to our Christian life. And we call it humility, and it's not. So oftentimes when we come to Christian EOR, we turn down opportunities to step out, serve, and speak in the name of someone else will do it better. Right? We, walk, we just walk by a coworker or a friend who is curious about the gospel because I'm not very good at sharing it. Right? And I want to be sensitive here because I understand it's hard. I understand that life has beat us down and that the enemy constantly tells us lies about who we are in Christ. But at the same time, I want to be clear that such is not humility. Notice the tax collector at least goes to, he goes to the temple, he beats his breast, and he prays out loud. The Christian Eeyore does not pray out loud. They, would never, they, they don't pray in public. Christian Eeyoreism results from a lack, either a lack of trust in God, but it also can result from self-centeredness. I often find that when we get in this woe is me and I can't do anything, it often happens because we want to protect our lives. You want to protect your life. Keep it comfortable. If, you feel, if you're not good at much or you don't want to step out much or you don't want to take risks much, you won't get hurt much. You won't be challenged much. It's all about protecting self. Notice then, it's the same problem the prideful Pharisee has, but on the other end of the spectrum. All right? The Pharisee, pride exists, and he compares himself with others to, in order to exalt himself. Over here, the Christian Eeyore exists. Right? And we're in this state because we're comparing ourselves to others and saying we're not enough. But in both cases, it's all about the other person compared with me. Which brings me to my challenge. If you find yourself, like I so often do, in a dogfight with pride, right? and this applies to Christian Eorism too, but I want to focus for a moment on this dogfight with pride that I often find myself in. This, is, this sermon is so applicable to me. Let me suggest that the question you should ask yourself is not, why did this start up in the first place? It's not, what can I do differently? And neither is it, how can I fix this problem? Let me suggest instead that when it comes to fighting pride, the question is who? 
The question we should ask ourselves is who? Like, like the band, the who. All right? In fact, you, you can think of it that way. You can sing to yourself. I told myself I wouldn't sing again. But, you know, who are you? Who, 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 who? And it applies. Let me tell you why. All right? Who is your God? Who are you, God? And who does he say you are? When you cry out to God, who are you? Who or what responds back? When you say, God, who are you? Is the living God that cries back? Or is it your career? Or is it money that speaks back? Is it the approval, the attention, or the accolades of others that you hear whisper back to you? It's me. I'm your God. Or is it the shouts of your kids who we set above all other things in life? Who is your God? And who does he say that you are? The tax collector's God is the God of Israel. And God calls him justified. But God also calls him sinner. Right? And the tax collector insinuates that. He calls himself sinner because he knows God has called him a sinner. And that is the greatness of the gospel, friends. Our Father defines you and me in a way that inspires a humble confidence. It's a radical concept. A humble confidence. Sounds weird, right? How is this possible? A lowly confidence. It's because here's what God says about you. A slave, but a son. You're a sinner, but I've called you a saint. You're sick, and yet you are saved. You get that? This is who he says you are. And we have to grapple with finding our confidence in him and who he says we are. One of my favorite pastors, I'm going to explain this some more here. One of my favorite pastors who's living, uh, this guy by the name of Tim Keller, Yeah, he put this very well. I'm going to read to you kind of a part of his testimony about this. It's getting a little long. But he says this. When my own personal grasp of the gospel was very weak, my self-view swung wildly between two poles. All right? Notice pride in the Christian Eeyore here. When I was performing up to my standards in academic work, professional achievement or relationships, I felt confident, but not humble. I was likely to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. But when I was not living up to standards, I felt humble, but not confident. Felt like a failure. But then I discovered that the gospel contained the resources to build a unique identity. In Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. 
because of the gospel, who God is in Jesus Christ, and who he says you are as a result of dying on the cross for you, the Christian Eeyore is stripped away. But so also is the pharisaical pride. Our confidence becomes something else. Our humility, yeah, it's because of our sin. But we put confidence in someone greater than ourselves. You see this. We see this. I didn't plan to say this, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes his ministry. And he says three things about it. He says that my confidence comes from Christ in God. My sufficiency is from the Lord. And my competence is from the Spirit to minister this new covenant. Confidence, sufficiency, competence. Paul had all of them. If you read them, you wonder, Paul is so bold, he's almost borderline arrogant. No. No. It's because he lives for an audience of one. His competence, his confidence, his sufficiency come from God. And this helps us answer, friends, our original question on self-esteem. It isn't important so much what beliefs and feelings you have about yourself. Let me be honest about that. It's not that important. And I'm, I'm sorry if that offends you. But rather, more important certainly, is do you trust the beliefs, the feelings and beliefs that our Father has about you? Who He says you are. Friends, I believe this morning that God is calling us, calling us who have trusted in ourselves to grapple with the question of who. For those who have trusted in ourselves and we're, we're fighting that, we recognize in our lives we're fighting it, to ask the right question, who are you, God? Who is truly my God? And who do you say that I am? Remind me. Speak into my life. Speak through others. Challenge me with this. Who do you say that I am? A slave. Can do nothing on your own, but I have called you son. A sinner. You've fallen short, rebelling against me, but I have called you saint. Sick. Infirmed in need of desperate help. But I have saved you by grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, I ask that you would challenge us, one, to see our pride, that we are the kind of people who don't recognize it. We're quick to say, oh yeah, they are the Pharisees. I'm the tax collector. Or they are the Pharisees. I'm a disciple who might struggle with that occasionally. But Lord, how subtle pride creeps into our lives, Lord. Comparing ourselves to others. Talking about ourselves. Focusing on ourselves, Lord. God, you have a great plan for us. Not one that makes us revert to, woe is me. But one that says, woe is me without you, Jesus. I'm in desperate need of your mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you give us confidence because you've called us saint. Because you desire to work and be glorified in our lives. Thank you for this kind of radical, humble confidence found only through Jesus Christ in the gospel. We love you, Lord.
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.